when I say pain, when my patients say pain, we're not necessarily saying the same thing. And I'm still concerned about why are we using the word that way? And I've encouraged my younger colleagues and I've said that if I had to start all over again and start a clinic, and in fact, I hardly ever use the word pain, but I would never use the word pain. After a patient explains to me why they're there, then I would help them develop a vocabulary. What are you feeling? How are you feeling? Can you change what you're feeling? Including, of course, do you understand what's going on? Welcome to the Biology of Business. I'm Kate Markland, and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Gloria Gilbert in Canada, who is passionate about the role of physiotherapists in pain. Hello, Gloria. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, hi. Today. It's wonderful to see you again. It's wonderful. Oh, lovely yeah. to see you too. So, Gloria, can you just, before we get stuck into the world of pain, and I know you've got all sorts to say about that word in itself, pain, can you just describe your background? Because your background as a physiotherapist is really quite fascinating. Well, I have to, I have to admit that my career path started when I was eight years old, and I was going to be a physiotherapist when I was eight. And that's because I grew up with a maternal aunt who had multiple sclerosis. And there were always these happy, friendly people who were taking care of her who happened to be physiotherapists. So I really always had that in my mind that this was a career or a position that I, that I wanted. And I'm lucky that it turned out that way. Um, but by the time I got to McGill, and I was only 17 when I entered the School of Physiotherapy at that time, I have no problem telling you how many years ago that was because um, I got my diploma in 66. So born in 45, still an active member of the organization. But by the time I got to McGill, I had already had a, a, a car accident and I sustained a, a head injury when I was 15. And um, I was in a coma for a week. I still have no sense of smell. I have spatial issues that would be handled very differently now. And so I think that when I think, well, we're gonna jump ahead later to pain, but when I think about thinking about sensations or feeling sensations, I had my own sensations early on that were not always pain. And so I think that eventually when I started working with patients, I sort of thought about that a little, a little bit differently, giving people more words. So you're right, when I went to McGill, most of my teachers were British trained, including the principal. Um, we were a diploma and then the first undergraduate degree program at McGill. So I had two years of OT under my belt and I still wish that happened to most physios and we cross train, but doesn't quite happen the same way. I could have been the last class that would be given a diploma in physical and occupational therapy, but I switched into physio. And so I have a BSc PT from McGill in 1967, one of two graduates at that program, because most of the class, which was female at the time, um, stopped with a bachelor's of PT. But you can sort of see the writing on the wall. And um, eventually, of course, I did a master's at Western in London, Ontario, mainly because I didn't know how to use a computer and I didn't know how to learn to read a journal article because that wasn't part of 1960s training. Um, and so 
um, in any event, I, I always enjoyed being a physiotherapist. I love people. Uh, after graduating, I worked with children and uh, children for 10 years um, and partially in the States. So we're dealing with some strange social situations, failure to thrive, um, abuse issues, came back to Canada, worked with the uh, what was then called the Crippled Children's Treatment Center, which was the facility for educable, physically handicapped children that are now integrated into the school system. But years ago, they weren't. Um, and again, I was part of that pilot of helping teachers accommodate to a handicapped child. And by then I was married with almost three kids. So my kids became part of the experience of dealing with normal children when you are always dealing with sick or handicapped children as the physios. So I think the experiential nature of me was always, was always there. And, and that's so something really interesting you described because the profession has become so academic and theoretical at times and can neglect the importance of the experience and what we pick up through, right. through experiences. That's right. And I think that it was just, you know, I was definitely, um, you know, I, I wasn't that much older than many of the physiotherapists, but I was in a different, in a different framework of working. And, and of course, it was important for them to handle normal children, because at that point, we only had handicapped children to, or, you know, physically, mostly cerebral palsy, uh, but few other muscular dystrophy type things. But then we had normal, quotes sick children. So, I mean, there's a balance to be struck with that. So, again, given age and stage, I was around, you know, always worked part time as a physio and did a lot of volunteer work. Uh, we live in London, Ontario, which is a great place to live. University town, hospital town. Um, and um, so never, we were from Montreal. We never went back to Montreal um, and have been here for over 50 years. So it's home. It really is home. And I think that, um, I think many of us who've been around for a long time suddenly have to say, do I still want to do this? Is there something else I want to do? But I really did want to continue to be a physio. At this point, I'm working outpatients in adult outpatients at a big city hospital. And so I just wanted to spend more time with my people. That's what I wanted. I couldn't deal with the 10 minutes or 12 minutes or whatever that we all had. Um, and even when working at the hospital, I started doing education sessions um, not necessarily pain at that time, but just things to make sure that the patients understood why they were there, you know, whether it was their shoulder or their back, whatever. So it was before we were formally doing things like that. Um, and again, you're describing examples of where you're using your initiative and your experience to create creative solutions to problems that you're observing. Okay. Well, I mean, again, I think most of us I know in Britain, it's pretty similar. We had outpatient departments with curtains that were, you know, for patients who needed more necks and backs that you had to talk to, hated that. I used to get really upset with my, my, my physio buddies saying, you know, another neck, another back. I was always, there's, there's never the same problem. And then of course you had people in the open gym anticipating that they would be easier to treat but of course, they're not easier to treat. 
because that racked up knee can belong to a professional football player and the finger injury can belong to a pianist, you know. So I think the important thing was always getting to know the patient, even before we did as much intake as hopefully we do now. I know it's still a little bit hit and miss, but we have to get to know the patient. So I was the therapist who liked to work behind the curtain where nobody else seemed, where fewer people seemed to want to work because I like to talk to people. And of course, by talking to people, you find out a little bit more about how to help them and what they understand and what they don't understand. And I'm a strong believer. I mean, as physios, we have an immediate or almost immediate recognition of what's going on with muscles, joints, et cetera. We need to convey that to the patient for them to understand how to begin their treatment program and then how to continue with that. So that's why even before, and I'm, I'm not, I, I think nowadays some facilities do have, you know, more formal education sessions, but it was more informal and, and just, um, but it was always very helpful and it kept developing and developing and developing. So 1981, 82, I decided to leave the hospital open and, and go in. I, I did not go into private practice. I just wanted to spend more time with people, but the government stopped funding outpatient physiotherapy. Up until then, it was the Ministry of Health in Ontario who funded, and I was just at that crossroads. So my plan suddenly became, I'm a private practitioner and um, without a business sense. You know, when you've been a staff therapist for a long time, you're not thinking about business. But I'm lucky my husband's very supportive of do whatever you want to do. We rented space and then small space became bigger space. And eventually, you know, the clinic was around um, for 33 years until I moved on. So when I opened a private practice, and again, I was the first physiotherapy-owned practice in London, Ontario. It was about the same time as the Canadian Back Institute. Um, so Hamilton Hall in London, in Canada, was a big deal to have Canadian Back Institutes. So we were all learning on the spot. But of course, the patients I saw were those that could not be handled well in an acute care setting. They were people with chronic conditions and or people who had had some traumatic events and still needed some type of management and they had no place to go. Um, so that's where my patient load became those that I had to do a little bit more history, a little bit more intake, find out what was going on. And that's how that word pain evolved. evolved. Um, of course, as health providers, for over a hundred years, we've always dealt with pain, but I still have concerns about how we use that word. Mm -hmm. um, many of my, my patients were patients who were dealing with legal injuries, you know, and lawyers would send with a diagnosis of chronic pain. There's no such thing as a diagnosis of chronic pain. What they were really saying, including some health providers, guy's not trying hard enough, he's waiting for a million dollars, he's what, the same issues that we hear all over the time. So at some point, and I'm going to introduce something and I'll come back to the word pain. At some point, we realized that many people with delayed recovery post-trauma may have sustained a head injury. All right. And from the year 2009, I started 
on that topic, learning a lot before it was in our syllabus, so to speak, learning about concussions, what it did, um, and um, before we really were starting to assess people looking for that. Even today, though, I have concerns that we look at a patient with a concussion, we look at a patient with a traumatic physical injury, and we don't always put it together, all right? We don't always put it together. So one of my other plans is to help people develop a good assessment for those types of people. In any event, the word pain was suddenly in my vocabulary all the time. And remember, this is before we had any guidelines, any, any principles of how to deal with a pain patient. And so I began attending meetings of the International Association for the Study of Pain. And one of the chapters is the Canadian Pain Society. And for the most part, I was only the only physio floating around trying to figure out what was going on. Many of them, of course, were researchers, many of the presentations, but we were all learning. And I can tell you that there was a point where it was, who's going to win, the physical camp or the psychological camp? And then, of course, you realize, no, we're all in this together, right? And so it, um, but it was a very important learning opportunity. And um, it, it, it sort of explained sort of the different dimensions of what kind of care patients needed. And so even in the clinic, which was called the Downtown Clinic Physiotherapy and Health Counseling, I never called it a physio clinic only because I knew that it isn't just physio. It's all the other things that are necessary. It's the, it's the education, it's the OT, it's the guidance, whatever it is. And so within a relatively short period of time, I had an educational counselor who had an MED in counseling. I had a physio who was also trained as an OT. You know, I couldn't call myself an OT. Um, and we had massage therapists, and of course, physios in my generation were the massage therapists. My do, my final exam was massaging the chief of the department of the school. I remember that very clearly. <laughs> so we always relied a lot on our hands to tell us what was going on with the patient. And that's one of the concerns I have today, because younger students don't always get their hands on people. They're looking at you know, problems a little bit differently. I and think any you're, you're picking up on here is that, well, certainly I'm very aware that I'm highly kinesthetic, that as a population, physiotherapists tend to be highly kinesthetic and there's something about physicality that's drawn into the profession right. in the first place. And that is being, that strength has been weakened, but that, that, yeah. that kinesthetic ability is, or strength Correct. is vital to whether we preserve it one way or another. Correct. So as much as we have to know a lot of things, including referred pain patterns and all that, I've always encouraged, you know, younger physios, put your hands on somebody, even if you don't know what you're looking for or what you're feeling. You know, first of all, patients like you to put touch them as long as you have permission. But I mean, and, and it's going to teach you what's going on. And the tissue will teach you what's happening. Right? It's, it becomes one other piece of information that, that you really need. So our clinic became essentially a little interdisciplinary pain clinic way before its time. We're talking in the mid 80s. All right. And I worked with a, a met of physiatrist um, who unfortunately uh, died relatively young, but she was relative. She was ahead of her time. 
we were talking this way of approaching patients. She even came to my clinic and did trigger point injections. She was working on an inpatient chronic pain program at one of the hospitals in London. And the physios in the hospital were not comfortable with this population. So people, this, this group, I mean, it would not happen nowadays. The hospital transported these patients to my clinic three days a week. And we did whatever we, and we were all learning and we were all putting it together. And then of course I would go back to the hospital if it was a team meeting or, um, you know, because again, Dr. Barton always included the insurer, the family, you know, the patient as well. So we were way ahead of our, our, our time as far as handling it. But from my standpoint, it of course put everything together. And whether we were dealing with a chronic pain program or just looking at a patient that needs more than a an exercise program, we have to consider the whole person. We have to consider the whole person. So the clinic evolved and um, I was busy, 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 you know, but at some point I said, it's time to move on and to try and, you know, use what I have learned and pass it on to other people. So when I closed the clinic in 2015, I just sort of, I didn't really close it. I just moved ahead. I was sharing space the last year and a half with a colleague who I had started when she was 16 and encouraged her to go to McGill and Sarah's still in practice and owns two clinics. Um, so I just walked out essentially and said, here, you know, here I am. So anytime I need the clinic space, I have it if I need it. Um, but I also felt I was at a point where I had to write everything I, I learned on paper. So I wrote an ebook. took me years to do it because I was fairly computer illiterate, but, you know, had, had businesses that would help. So I did write an ebook called Don't Go to the Ouch, which was primarily developed for health providers um, and talked about many different aspects of, of treatment or management. And then over the years, I morphed that into a website, which is, again, don't go to the ouch, but is focusing more on exercise and movement. And again, most of the material is designed to make the physios or the health providers time easier by providing the patient with information that they can better understand their problem. So I, you know, and I keep reinforcing that, that it's, it's something where we really don't know how many, how much people understand about what's going on with them. So it has, it has continued. And now I've continued to do outreach and I'm fairly involved with the pain sciences division of the Canadian physiotherapy association. I give out a chronic, a glory Gilbert chronic pain award at McGill uh, since 2016. And that was to encourage physios to present either a poster or presentation at an other than a physio meeting, you know, to get out there. And of course, now we are part of the interdisciplinary world, but to participate in that. And I'm sort of very pleased I just gave out the award and this time it was shared, it wasn't a research paper, it was three physios, graduate physios, who are taking a credentialing course in pain management. And the school asked if I could use the, the, the bursary that way. And I said, fine. And it's interesting to see innovative projects that come out of that. That's what's important. 
how do we help people understand what that word pain is? So I'm going to come back to that word pain. Here I am. So the important thing is that when you say pain, when I say pain, when my patients say pain, we're not necessarily saying the same thing. And I'm still concerned about why are we using the word that way? And I've encouraged my younger colleagues and I've said that if I had to start all over again and start a clinic, and in fact, I hardly ever use the word pain, but I would never use the word pain. After a patient explains to me why they're there, then I would help them develop a vocabulary. What are you feeling? How are you feeling? Can you change what you're feeling? Including, of course, do you understand what's going on? And some physios nowadays start with a very physiologic approach. Personally, I don't think a patient has to know all the anatomy and physiology. They have to understand the connection, of course. But then if an individual person wants to learn more, we can provide them with the tools to learn more. But basically, people have to understand why they're there. So, so Gloria, this requires the physiotherapist to be brave enough, because sometimes it does feel like bravery or courage, to have a very, or open the door for a very meaningful and potentially emotional conversation with the patient. And sometimes there can be a cowering of this referral needs to go to a counsellor, it needs to go to a psychologist, and the physiotherapist not daring to open that door. I, I agree, I agree. And I have had staff where I have found them crying in the corner or crying in the bathroom because they were overwhelmed. And then I would have to, and others would have to work with them to try and, you know, how to deal with that patient and how, and maybe not to, not to take them away from that patient, but to help them manage that better. I mean, I think as a health provider though, um, and as a physio, we're very touchy feely people. Um, you and I know, I mean, I hate to say this, but maybe some of the physios out there should not be physios. I really do believe that I've met enough who are waiting to retire and I'm telling them, and I, I don't understand that because that means that they're looking at this as a job rather than each patient is a new experience. There's no such thing as the same back patient or the same neck patient. So getting back to the word, you, you're right, though, so you have to be prepared. And so I think that a senior staff working with therapists has to be prepared for assistance if somebody is having trouble. But I've also had I've had that experience when. Sometimes, you know, you go to a meeting and you do an experiential little exercise and physios fall apart, meaning you don't know what people's reaction is going to be or what it triggers. So I think nowadays, since that does happen, we have to be aware and we have to have people available so that they can deal with that. I mean, there's one very, you know, very, very marked, you know, situation where a physio, we're doing a Feldenkrais you know, example, it doesn't seem like such a major deal, but again, you're paying attention to your feelings and movement, et cetera. And it triggered a very difficult response that of course you and I know in the end is gonna be helpful, but at the time we have to be prepared to deal with it. So I've been working with this funny word pain and I've written a lot of things about, you know, the International Association for the Study of Pain gave us a definition of pain as a, 
an experiential uh, an experience that something is wrong with our bodies, etc. And then took a few more years, and we added all the biopsychosocial issues that could be contributing to the problem. And then we go back, and we still call it pain. So I don't understand that. I really don't. And I was really happy that in my musings, um, I did find a Journal of Pain Research article. It's 2019, but it said chronic pain. What does it mean? A review on the use of the term chronic pain in clinical practice. So I'm not the only person who's thinking about this because the taxonomy, you know, it's true. Chronic pain could be, is it post-diabetes? Is it post-surgical? Is it post-trauma? Why are we using the same word? We need to explain things better. I think so, you hit the nail on the head, Gloria. I was just sent by a colleague just in the last couple of days a quote from Mike Thacker, who's um, based here in the UK, who has defined pain as pain is what the person says it is. Simple as right. that. And the emphasis that that definition places is around the individual's perception. And what I'm hearing you're describing is quite often it's a problem with misunderstanding due to a lack of vocabulary or clarity in what the experience is. And you mentioned already how important it is that we help the person in front of us who's describing pain articulate what their experience is and what their right. perception is of right. their experience rather than dumping our own perception on them. Well, that's why I sort of wonder, question, the IASP has done a great job providing us with this definition right and and given what you just said about your 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 other colleague a person's report this is one of the biopsychosocial notes um, a person's report of an experience of pain should be respected and then through their life experiences individuals will learn what pain means etc cetera, etc cetera. we all know that so why are we not coming up with a different vocabulary so you know in any event i mean i would encourage um, our listeners to click on to IASP and get those definitions um, because it is important because that's the framework. And right now that seems to be the vocabulary, the language that most people who are doing research in pain use. And I, and, and again, I'm going to come back to the fact that as therapists, the reasons for us seeing the patient may be, you know, there's this myth, especially amongst some younger people who may never have had a hospital experience. Unfortunately, I have met people who are graduating who don't know that physios can work in a hospital. It's very sad. I mean, we just don't have clinical placements to tackle everything. And we all know that not everything is an athletic injury or a straightforward musculoskeletal injury. And, you know, not everything is an orthopedic problem. And most things are a combination of things. And given age and stage of where people are at and how their ability is to change their situation and move on is, I'm not suggesting that, that we all have the skills to deal with it, but we should be able to recognize how we can talk to our patient and perhaps put them in touch with people who can help them, you know, manage any other, any other problems. Um, so, that's what I've been working on more and more. I, I'm, I continue to stay updated with, in Canada, it's Echo Ontario, which is a concussion 
group, you know, from University Health Network in Toronto. Um, I'm sure they would like anybody to join. The good news is that we have world-class people in the field of concussion presenting something, uh, their topic, whether it's psychiatry or physical medicine or concussion. And then we have a case presentation and then we have a discussion, even on Zoom, we have a discussion. And I've gone through that cycle twice. So people know me in the sense that, because experience tells you little bits and pieces of things that sometimes you don't think about, right? When you, nothing is really straightforward. So it, um, so I, I try and stay involved with the brain injury people as well as the pain people. But I think it's, it's merging more and more, because, especially when it comes to trauma. And of course, when it comes to any type of symptomology, does it mean that there's only one reason for that to happen? There may be other things and physios are very good about saying, well, I can't do it this way, so I'll do it that way. That's a big deal for some patients to have to do things differently or not be able to cook the same way or you know, whatever, whatever the activity is. And we have to be careful about ensuring that we really zoom, zoom in on what our patient is dealing with. So I still have fun with it. That's why I'm still around. I want to call myself a physiotherapist, so I have to stay licensed. But I do all the things that the college tells me to do. You know, I keep up to date with things, et cetera. Um, but as, as, as we've talked about, we, I have things that I, I would like to continue to work on. And, and one in particular is an assessment of a patient. Um, because I have concerns about all those pain questionnaires and disability questionnaires and how useful they really are uh, in providing us with the, the armament to do, you know, to present a treatment program. And especially if somebody has had major trauma, most of us ask them, how were you the day, how were you before the trauma? Rather than maybe, when were you fine? That could have been 20 years ago when they were fine. And something happened, it changed their ability to get back to work. They worked part-time, they changed. But it tells us a lot about people's resilience, whether they're open to doing things differently, whether they have the skills, uh, et cetera, or whether we have to help them with that. So that's something that, again, even when I was still in the clinic, I pretty much didn't rely on the questionnaires. I mean, I sometimes I would have a questionnaire in front of me and use that as a way of talking to my patient to make sure I didn't miss anything. But for the most part, I always started, but tell me when you were fine. And we all know that some people were never fine. They may have had a childhood trauma. They may have had migraines when they were a teenager, you know? And so all of those bits and pieces may contribute, may or may not, but it may contribute to how they're presenting today and how they're able to modify, change, adapt, which are the words that we use all the time, which seem pretty simple to us, but they're very difficult for most people to do that. So, so I still feel I have a few more things that I would like to contribute by making a little bit of noise. <laughs> so I'm really hearing from you, Gloria, that you're giving physiotherapists the permission to really talk and engage with the individual person in front of them and not put them through a protocol, being aware of 
process and uh, uh, not putting the individual through a protocol, listening to the individual and being curious about their story and their life so that that you can create a treatment plan that is really tailored to their needs. And I'm also hearing from you, Gloria, that you're describing very much that we are very much taught the impact of the mind on the body, but less emphasised, which is remarkable given that we're physical therapists, the effect of the body on the mind. And constantly undermining these skills that we have. Yes, I, I agree. But as I, you know, I do think that we have to be certain that you choose the right profession for you as well. If you're a health provider, whether you're physio, OT, or anyone else, you have to be prepared to look at the whole patient. If you're only comfortable looking at a piece of them, then maybe you should immediately go work at an interdisciplinary clinic, you know, because I think that that's sometimes what's missing is that people realize that you learn more from your patient. I mean, there are pros and cons in the sense that I'm, you know, when I was a clinic owner, I didn't worry about how long it took. You know, patients were scheduled for an hour, a little bit longer with me or with anybody else. And um, we all know there are busy clinics. You have to get people in and out very quickly. If patients, if people are paying for treatments, they want to have some, they want to have something when they walk out. Now, maybe that should be in a piece of paper, an education piece, or a schedule that says work on this or something like that. So we're dealing in a different time as well. Not everyone and not all health providers have the luxury of spending as much time with their patient as they want to. And I appreciate that. And so I think it becomes up to the more senior staff to provide the tools for their staff to make sure that they're comfortable with the problems that are being presented to them. And or, you know, if they're not comfortable, then provide the tools or the resources to become more comfortable. And um, I would be the first one to say that, you know, dealing with straightforward orthopedics was never my forte. I don't, you know, in my generation, which is my plan, Kate, is to be the oldest licensed physiotherapist in Canada before I retire. So I hope that that happens. You know, I mean, we never know physios, life can change in 10 seconds, right? But that's my plan. But as long as I feel I have something to contribute and looking from, I'm not looking from the other side, because sometimes I see problems that or see concerns, whether they're patients or therapists, where people are not really paying attention to what the patient is really saying. You look at their body language, you look at how they're talking to you, you look at how they're avoiding talking to you about certain things. And you're correct, not everybody could handle all dimensions of of a people problem, but we have to try or we have to move them on to someone who can help. And I'm just gonna add one thing. I mean, the reality is we can't help everybody. And even Gloria Gilbert can't help everybody. So you try your best and at some point you just say, that's it. And I've left several patients over the years with call me if you need me. You know, I just, we don't have a, you know, on the other hand, I think that they should be able to see a physio or an OT or a health provider when they need to. It may not be something that works with finances. You know, we're all dealing more with private enterprise, et cetera. Uh, We need more public, we need more. Not everybody wants to sit on a computer and learn things. Um, 
But I think that we have to be realistic is that we shouldn't, you know, just sort of say, um, we'll leave it like this. We have to sort of give people a plan and, and, and the ability to come back to us when they feel they need some help. And just now, it's very interesting because I'm dealing with a, a patient, because uh, I will see people now, but I'm dealing with a patient who um, I saw post-car accident in 2007, all right? Now, she was relatively, she's only 47 now, so she was very young in 2007. And I'm not suggesting all her current problems are related to the car accident, but the fact that she contacted me and I had to decide, I did see her once in the clinic, but then I said, it would be better for me to see this patient in their home. So, because I need to help her develop a schedule during the day so she can stay ahead of these symptoms rather than there's something wrong with me and I want it to be fixed. So I will continue to do that. And of course, I tend to be the um, provider of lots of education stuff, but then I also talk to people about it. You know, if I send something, I will then discuss it. Did you read this? What did you think? You know, it wasn't just giving people internet. Were you able to integrate that into what you're doing during the day. And it's interesting because I walked into her home, which is airy white and silver and the pool in the back. And she has two children under the age of 12. And I'm thinking, this is a very clean house, you know, adults, and uh, which is fine, but it it's part of her personality, right? Everything has to be clean and neat and whatever. And you have a 12-year-old and a six-year-old in the house. So, all right. And then it's, and then when I said to her, what pillow do you use? Where do you lie down? Where do you stretch? It was like on the couch. So I said, bring me down your pillow. Let's talk about putting things in the living room or wherever you want to be, where you integrate that into what you're doing during the day. Because I asked her, what was the first thing you do when the kids go to school? I lie down and recover. I said, wrong answer. I said it nicely, but I mean, I said, no, it means that now you have a neck problem. She thinks she has a headache problem, but she has a neck problem. And, and again, let's start with taking care of yourself during the day. So I did talk a lot about schedules in the ebook as well, giving people the idea that no two patients are the same. And the patient thinks about a problem differently than the doctor does or the health provider does, differently than the family does or the, or the people they're working with. And since for the most part, we're dealing with an invisible problem, it's very challenging for people to feel comfortable saying, I have to do things differently or I can't do something. Um, some of us, it gets easier over time, but it's not always easy for some people and we have to respect that. So I've always joked with patients and I said, I really should have had fit t-shirts that said, my physio made me do this. So if I had to do things differently, it's because Gloria told me I had to do things differently until they're ready to accept the fact that it's better for them to do things differently. So we all learn little tricks of the trade as we deal with people and figure out new ways of trying to help them, you know? And uh, so it's, it's been an interesting journey and I hope the journey will continue because now we're working into 
an older population as well. You know, people who may have had bad trauma when they were young and it doesn't go away. It changes. I mean, the, the management doesn't go away. Hopefully they don't have another problem, but we all know that the body changes. And so it may become more challenging to do those exercises or commit to another way of doing things, etc. So I guess the bottom line is I'm still having fun. And so I have to continue to have to enjoy what I'm doing. That's where I'm at right now. You're very keen to get the message out that physios have an important role to play in the world of pain, and we mustn't give away that responsibility. I agree. I agree. But we have to, we have to, we have to develop a vocabulary. We talk to our patients a bit more so that they we understand what their concerns are. So if you ask a patient. Why are you seeing, I mean, after we talked about the reason they're here, but what is the most important problem that you're dealing with right now? It may or may not be pain. It may be that they're worried they can't go back to work. Or I had one patient who was much older than me at the time, who was concerned about sexual relations with her husband it was very difficult. All right. That was her priority. So we, you know, I mean, you never know what people are going to have what their concerns are. We may look at it and say, we have to do this, 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 this in order to put it all together. But no, not necessarily. So we have to listen to our patients. And then I think we have to feed back to them and make sure they're comfortable with the direction that we're trying to help them with. Because we're not making the direction, we're giving suggestions it's going to be up to them to see if they can make these changes. So again, I'm just going to sort of say that if we talk about, this is something I use, an example I use when I'm teaching, um, is that we all know there's no such thing as the same car accident. There's no such thing. But let's assume there is the same thing. Somebody was in the driver's seat, they were turning left, they were hit from behind, Da, 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 da. Okay, everybody was the same way. But one was the 27-year-old graduate student who was working on his PhD. One was a young mom with three little kids at home. One was a 62-year-old guy who works on the assembly line. So how do we take those examples and try and help our physios create a treatment program? for them. We know that different elements are there. We need all those elements, but we need to zero in on what the priority is of each individual person. And we have to work with them to be realistic about what they're able to do to try and change what's going on. Um, And in the same way that we must get away from these necks and backs, you know, this terrible way of some physios talking about patients by a diagnosis rather than or about the person you know because every every person has a different experience when they're when they're dealing with the problem and that's the challenge of being a good physio of being a good health provider is to think creatively you have to know your stuff but you have to think creatively too and sometimes our goal plan is not going to be the same that's what the patient is. But if the patient is feeling they're making gains, then that's that's important. And you wonder, or you're making me wonder, if sometimes one of the problems is with this sort of diagnostic labeling, because it certainly seems that 
sort of one of the roles here particularly is that clinicians have just become diagnosticians and not necessarily or physiotherapists have become diagnosticians rather than somebody that's going to help the person in front of them actually achieve an outcome. It's just about sticking a label on. And then that labeling can actually become overwhelming for perhaps a junior physio who is scared of what the label might mean. And they forget to see there's a person in front of them. And you make me wonder whether your experience of your own injury when you were 15 and of your aunt's made you understand there's a person behind all of these labels, just by not the label. Even and and sometimes patients, you know, give themselves an excuse about why they can't do something because they have a label. Somebody has told them they've stamped a label on them. And this is the reason why I can't go back to work and why I can't do this and that. Rather than I know this sounds a little crude, but sometimes with healthy, healthy people emotionally, I would never do this with someone where I didn't know where they were at. I would say to them, what if your body got dropped into some, well, I don't want to use the word rainforest because we've just had that example, but into some country, right? We've dropped into some country where there are no services available to you. Would you survive or wouldn't you survive? All right. And meaning that we all have the ability to pull ourselves together if we want to, right? Some better than others, some need help, etc. But when we're faced with that, we have to find our own inner strength and resilience to do something rather than, and we have to be careful as health providers, not giving them excuses or tools or way that ways of dealing with things that are only one way. There's no other way, all right? Because sometimes patients are saying, I must do things in a certain way because it's cultural, it's the way I was brought up, et cetera. And having to modify that is a big deal. It may not be a big deal for us, but for them it is. So we have to understand that that and integrate that into even how we're asking them to, or to help them do some cooking. I mean, the helping the cooking, especially around Christmas time is let's make a phone call, but you know, but not everybody can make a phone call and not to order something or not everybody, you know, feels that that's, that's to do. So I think that that's the joy truthfully in being a good health provider is that it's, it's not a case study. You're dealing with a person in front of you and you're trying to be creative and you're trying to zero in on what their needs are, not what your needs are. Your needs may be to blank, 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 get this person discharged so I can get a whole bunch of other people in. That, and I'm coming back to that. It is a challenge nowadays. We don't, we don't treat, we have more and more private practitioners and we, we have, I mean, it is a, a business model. We have to be careful about that. But I think that we can, you know, we have enough skills that we can be creative and look at the patient and maybe create the resources in the clinic or in the hospital so that the patients have information and they have those resources, whether they're written, whether they're on a computer, whether it's, I'll call you next week, whatever it is that works for that person, not necessarily is, um, you know, and, and, and the challenge is that there's no, there's no one stop, there's no one project, is, one procedure is going to fit everybody or one plan is going to fit everybody. But that's the fun with being a people person. All right. I mean, I say fun in the sense, of course, it's challenging sometimes. And I can't tell you 
you know, that there weren't years where I was wondering what the hell am I doing, you know, coming back and spending hours worrying about people. But, but you learn by more and more contact and more experience. And people are people, you know, get to know them as a person rather than as a case study. And I think we would be much better off. Mm. So what is your what is the wish for the for Gloria Gilbert's legacy to the physiotherapy profession? What what would you wish that people remember your main message to be? We learn to listen better. We learn to listen. We need we need to use our time sometimes a little bit differently because very often therapists feel they have to do something right away rather than, I don't know, maybe that person doesn't understand what the ultrasound machine is or why they're doing an ultra or why they're doing an exercise. So we have to pay attention to what the patient is telling us and, and also feed back to them what they're telling us to make sure that we're all on the same wavelength. So the communication is key. I think we have to continue to develop our communication skills. And we have to integrate that with all the other things that affect how, what happens nowadays to be a physio, the business, you know, the challenge, the environment, et cetera. Um, it's hard for somebody to say this person's had a head injury. They should be in a quiet, dark room, you know, when we have treatment that may or may not be possible, but we have to be aware of that and do our best to accommodate that. So the first few times that we see the patient, I think it's important to really get to know who they are and what can they, what, what, how we are going to continue to help them. What kind of information, what kind of treatment do they need? And whatever we do, it mustn't just be in the clinic. It has to be what they're doing at home. So the second time or third time I see a patient, it's always show me what show me the exercises that you're doing at home. And I don't castigate them if they don't know what they're doing. We just do it again. We do it again because I'm not I'm not fixing them. I'm providing them with the tools to help themselves. I will problem solve with them, but I can't fix them. And if somebody is unable to carry that out, then we have to think of other creative ways, or as I said, sometimes it's call me if necessary, call me when you can. Um, so I think that's the key is that we have to be careful that we're not just treatment providers. It's not just like I said to my patient who I hadn't seen for 15 years, the massage therapist, the osteopath is not fixing you. And she looked at me and said, oh, I hope they were. And I said, no, they're not fixing you. If anything, I would rather you integrate your massage or your osteopathic treatment into your daily or your monthly schedule and continue to work on what we're talking about. Because maybe right now, you know, having the massage with a good therapist is helping you adhere to your exercise or your home program. So it's very different, and that's why I'm suggesting it's not just the physio. The physio has to be an integral part of the team of what's, what's needed, because the family may be necessary, and especially if you're dealing with a, a young person, you know, the parents have to be part of all of this. So it's, it's time-consuming, but I think if we give ourselves at least one or two visits to really better understand what we're doing and understand what all the possible variables can be and then discuss how we can help the patient 
with the patient or with the family, because it's no use us providing some type of a treatment plan that the patient can't adhere to or is just not ready to adhere to. Then we're both feeling that we're not getting anywhere rather than, and that's challenging too, especially with people who've had problems for a long time, because very often they've seen one, more than one type of therapist before they see, let's say, someone like me or someone who has a different way of looking at that. And so they have to, they have to change how they've been dealing with this. One person, like I just mentioned, may have been, I want to get fixed. All right. So is this the right practitioner versus, you know, is there somebody who, um, you know, needs to help with how to deal with the day to day at home? And how can I integrate my physiotherapy objectives into doing that at home? Doesn't have to be in the clinic, doesn't have to be in the gym. I have to think outside the box all the time. What is realistic for that particular patient? So we have to continue to be open and listen and pay attention and make sure that we're feeding back, you know, we're talking back to the patient in a language and in a way that they understand what we're, what we're doing and how we can help or not help because we can't fix the lousy marriage. We can't fix the teenager who's, you know, they have being a problem right now. So that may be what, what we're really working around, you know, because my physical body responds to all this stress. How can I deal with the stress? So I try not to be the marriage counselor. I'm definitely not, the, not my scope of practice. But again, it's like when we respond to stress, very often this is what happens in our body. So then you give people some information, some tools to think about things a little differently. If you walk into the house and you immediately get a stress reaction, you have to say, what's going on? I can't tell them what to do, but what's going on? So I think it's, it could be, it's very interesting. I don't want to use the word fun because it's not fun, but I'm just saying it could be very interesting to see what happens to people when you provide them with information and they start to realize what is going, going on in their lives because you can't change that, but you can, you know, you can give them some generalities about stress or pain, the word pain and describing it differently. And how do you integrate activities with what you're trying to do during the day to try and make yourself feel useful or reasonable, et cetera. So it's, it's a forever process. It is. So Gloria, something, this is my last question, something that I'm increasingly aware of, I don't know if it's happening your side of the pond, but here, certainly in pro sports, increasingly physiotherapists are becoming the head of medical services for pro sports teams. And it often makes me wonder, what if that were the situation overall? What if instead of physiotherapists being allied health professionals and taking a sort of secondary seat and having an excuse of, well, I'll just pass you back to the doctor. We were the head of medical services. We were the primary, the first stop. We were the primary provider, whereby we're utilizing all of these skills of listening and of communication and really being curious and understanding what's going on in the person's world, how that could change the industry 
altogether. Well, I, I mean, I have examples. I have friends who are part of the the curling club or the hockey. They go overseas. They go with everybody. Many of these uh, athletes are spinal cord injuries, so they have all this special equipment and that type of thing. Not just wheelchairs. That's now all this electronic stuff. Um, I think we just got to keep blowing our own horn, so to speak. We have to keep telling people that we understand what's going on. Not that we know, but we understand what's going on and we have to continue to show people that we can do that. And that to some extent, you know, hopefully we're indispensable at some point. But because, because along with just accompanying the athletes or treating the injuries when you're in the locker room, we could start to look at the bigger picture and start to say, are there other things that maybe I can make some suggestions or recommendations? And then people look at us a little differently. You know, it's not because we're the people that should know something about disabilities or something about accommodation. So I think all of us have to get very comfortable with knowing who we are and speaking up and being part of the process. And I think for too long, when it came around this medical table, certainly when I was when, when I grew up and when I was a physio, the doctors had to sign a referral, right? You couldn't do anything. And I've had examples and situations where working at the hospital, I would have to go down to the clinic, the outpatient ortho clinic, and stand there and bump into Dr. So-and-so and say, oh, I asked you a question. You know, can you answer my question? Hopefully we don't have to do that anymore. But nonetheless, we have to make ourselves we have to make ourselves knowledgeable and we have to give ourselves permission to be part of that playing field. We shouldn't just say we're just physios and we have nothing to contribute. Because if anything, I think we have much to contribute, even sometimes more than the doctors do, because the doctors look very differently. I've had my own examples. I'm going to finish with this. About eight and a half months ago, I'm doing exercises in my sunroom because I do what I'm supposed to do. I'm lying on the floor doing exercises. The phone rings. Stupidly, I run for the phone, trip over the stoop between the sunroom and the dining room, and I knew I was going to land and hurt myself. And I did, okay? Undisplaced fracture of the humerus. Eight and a half months later, all right? And you know, gone through everything. And I have a, I have access to a pool where we live in a condo corporation. So when I was able, things are healed, start to do your exercises. And I've cured myself in other ways by swimming, all right, and modifying how, what we're doing. This was not working. The pain was too significant. And it was interesting because I suddenly found myself in the position of a patient, all right? The doctor kept telling me things that healed, just do your exercises. And I kept saying, it's not working. And then I was getting headaches and I don't get headaches, but I was getting myofascial referred pain because I also sustained a mild whiplash at the time. And it took me a while to understand that this is not just a straightforward shoulder injury, all right? That I'm dealing with a myofascial component as well. And now I can look back and say, well, why couldn't I have figured that out months ago? I couldn't, for whatever reason, the feeling, the discomfort was too extreme. And I had to go through the ultrasound and the, and the MRI and everything that says you're fine. But my massage therapist and I are working through releasing some of those tight muscles so that I can finally get some movement in my neck and my shoulder. Because the doctors were only looking at the, the fracture site. 
So, so we have, it's interesting because even though, you know, I, I can say that I, I have a lot of experience. Sometimes when things happen to us, it becomes another learning situation because you suddenly realize, you know, Gloria, think outside the box a little bit. Yeah, things are healed, but why can't you move your arm? All right. Or why is it so painful? And again, sometimes I'm explaining to patients, it's very challenging because they can't believe that muscles can be so tight. Or, you know, you show them referred pain patterns of myofascial pain and that the headache can be here and the headache can be here when it's coming from here. Well, there I was. I was experiencing the same thing, and yet it was very difficult for me to put it all together. So those experiences also helped me become a better health provider because I suddenly have to think differently. And as much as I respect the ortho guy, and I do, you know, I do, he's a good guy, he doesn't understand everything. On the other hand, I have to be careful about a teaching moment, all right, because I tried that early on when I went into the ortho clinic, you know, explaining how challenging this is. Do you give your patients a handout about what happens with shoulder injuries, what they should do? Because that's the way I think, right? I'm a physio. This is how you rest. This is how you do whatever. No, we just wait. We wait. And so we wait until the bone is healed. They send them to physio. Okay. But I don't know what kind of physio they send them to. I hate to say that, but we're just talking. That's what we've been talking about for the last hour. We don't know what that skill level is. And so, but now I'm going to go in for my last visit next week, and I'm going to bring in some myofascial referred pain pat patterns, all right, to show them upper quadrants, uh, what happens along with the shoulder. They may or may not integrate that, but I feel that it's my job to tell them that there are other reasons for why their shoulder is taking so long to recover. And maybe the next time I see a patient, with again, delayed recovery, they'll try and think differently. Cause I've always said, you know, I'm a physio, I understand what's going on. I understand acute pain. I, I understand it has to hurt, but there's something missing in all of this. And I couldn't do be the diagnostician until I started to work through this because I was too uncomfortable. So every, every day is another experience. So of course, I don't run for telephones anymore, but you know, it's, you're all, <laughs> We're always on a learning curve because it's always something. But the same way that you talked about how physios can be involved, whether the doctor listens to what I'm saying or not about myofascial pain, I feel that it's important for me to tell him there are other reasons that you could be getting this type of shoulder pain. He may or may not listen, but maybe somebody out there will pay attention and think a little bit differently when they see another patient. Because I couldn't just leave it. I'm not the type of person who could just leave it. All right. And I didn't want them to feel that they didn't help me. They did. They did all the things. They did all the tests to show me that I had a bad fracture and that it's healed. But now it's my job to explain why it wasn't so, so fast to get better. So it's a forever process. <laughs> it's forever. If the listeners would like to hear more from you, Gloria, where can they do well, that? Well, you know, I'm glad that we met each other, Kate, and who knows? I mean, it's like, I, I mean, I, I love talking to physios, right? And especially physio or health providers that are open to, to paying attention to their, to their patients and not just, I, I think that probably in the UK and in Canada and everywhere, you know, students have so much to learn nowadays. Um, 
I won't go through the education process, which is, I think, something that I, I have feelings about as well. But they have so much to learn and maybe not as much clinical experience and not as much supervisory experience that many of us had years and years ago. And that teaches you how to be a better therapist is to put your hands on the patient and feel what's going on and get to learn how to talk to them and don't be concerned about that um, because you never say anything wrong. You know, you just say something that may need a different explanation or you have to follow it up a little bit, but you really have to get to know who you're dealing with in front of you. Okay. Thank you very much for joining me, Gloria. You're welcome. If the listeners you're would welcome. like to hear more from you, where can they follow you? Well, I have um, I have a website, don'tgototheouch.com. I think the website has a very nice, lots of educational pieces that I hope physios and others will use for their patients. Thank you very much, Gloria. 